Hey everyone, it's Jim Surik. Hope you guys are having a great day. So I'm really honored to present this podcast to you. It's an interview with a gentleman named Jeff Greiner. Jeff Greiner is currently the CEO of a company called Valencia Technologies. I had the honor to work with Jeff at two companies, the um, Advanced Bionics Neural Stimulation Pain Company, which is now Boston Scientific Neuromodulation, and the Cochlear Business, which was purchased by Sonova Medical in 2009-10 timeframe. And we go through Jeff's story on how he got into med tech, how he started working for Al Mann, and then built the two companies and where he's at today. And we go into every great topic, leadership, building a team, and uh, integrity, honesty, um, turning obstacles into opportunities, being incredibly positive. The singular focus f- for people on his team being the company, the product, the patient, and the people and how he was able to create great teams around that. And he's planning to do the same thing with Valencia Technologies. So hold on tight. This is a great interview. Um, I'm really excited. I'm actually kind of proud to present this to you and uh, introduce Jeff Griner to you because he was a mentor or is a mentor of mine, and I really, really look up to him. So um, without any further ado, let's get at it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Medical Sales Nation. It's Jim Surek here. Glad you joined us today. I do have a great guest. His name is Jeff Greiner. Jeff Greiner was the president and co-CEO of a company called Advanced Bionics, and he and I worked together for a number of years. I think it was about, let's see, seven or eight years together as we helped build up some companies and sell them off. And I thought it would be great for the audience to talk to someone who has seen a lot of changes through healthcare, who has built up two successful companies and is in the process of building another one. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jeff Greiner. And Jeff, for our Medical Sales Nation audience, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Jimmy. I I appreciate that introduction. Well, I'm a, a lawyer by training. Get that out of the way. Uh, confess it. <laughs> um, and I started uh, really from the ground up a company called Advanced Bonics with Al Mann as, uh, as the principal capitalist, as uh, my mentor, uh, you know, obviously a legend in the field of medical technology. Well, that was 1992 with six engineers and scientists and no revenues, we started a company that was in a phase one uh, trial of a new cochlear implant. And from there, over the course of the next, uh, uh, call it 15 years, uh, we built uh, a company that to this day is uh, certainly one of the most successful companies in, in this field of neuromodulation, the notion of stimulating nerves to affect some good. Uh, that company, eventually had over 2,500 people in it and $300 million in revenue and was sold in three different torturous <laughs> transactions for about $3 billion. So it was a pretty successful company. Uh, 
I think in terms of my background, uh, I went to the Air Force Academy, uh, kind of an incubator for learning about leadership. And uh, while I was a, a lawyer in the Air Force and, and, and could have, did have the opportunity to practice uh, law uh, in a law firm setting, once I was given the opportunity to come inside and really understand how medical technology creates a difference in people's lives, it was kind of a no-brainer. I decided to do that, and uh, Al gave me an opportunity to, to, to build a company. Okay, so Jeff, so it's interesting, though. So you go from the Air Force Academy as an attorney, and how did you end up meeting Al to get into this business? What, what was that connection? You know, I got out of the Air Force in 1986 uh, after serving about an eight-and-a-half-year commitment. And, and in the Air Force, I did principally criminal prosecution. I was the youngest chief prosecutor for a certain uh, section of uh, Asia at the age of 26, and then went on to get an advanced degree in government procurement and had opportunities to practice law in a law firm setting in government contracts. Government contracts was a, a hot topic in 1986 because... Ten of our major contractors, uh, defense contractors, were, were under indictment for mischarging. Oh, nice. And so I, yeah, I knew something about uh, criminal trial prosecution, and I, I, I probably knew more than most folks about the audit of government contracts because I'd done a thesis on it. So I, I was all set to do that when uh, one of Al's um, longtime associates, uh, a, a guy who headed up uh, personnel, I think that's what it was called in those days, you know, out of the blue called me up and spun out all these stories about our man and said that they needed young leadership. And, you know, I really never had a job outside of the Air Force, so I believed everything he said. <laughs> you know? and, uh, How beautiful you and know, perfect it was. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know. How um, easy it would be. <laughs> and, you know, some parts of it was that were actually true. And I did get a chance to, to, to lead that company a few years down the road. So, Okay, but what was your first role there? Uh, I was an in-house counsel to a company called Siemens Paysetter, so the predecessor to St. Jude. Okay. Uh, Siemens eventually sold that pacemaker company to St. Jude Medical. Uh, that's the mainstay of the St. Jude uh, company to this day. Uh, Al had, had initially sold the company to Siemens in 1985, I believe. And, and stayed on as their CEO for a number of years and actually helped in the transition from Siemens to St. Jude. Okay. So I was in in-house counsel there for uh, from 1986 to 1992. Started Advanced Bonnets before it had a name in September of 1992. So were you in charge of the entire Advanced Bionics team? Would, did Al put you in charge of that? Right. Yeah. So in 1992... The, the team was composed of six engineers and scientists in 1992. And you? And me. Okay. Right? So I was in charge of something. It wasn't, uh, didn't have a name. It was, it was really um, part of another, at that time, corporate entity called Minimed, I think called Minimed Inc. or Minimed Limited. And eventually, uh, in, a, in a few months after I took over, uh, in January 93, we spun it off into a separate entity called Advanced Bionics. Okay, so y you don't have necessarily any true understanding at this point of how to build a medical device company, right? As an attorney, you've kind of watched what happened at, uh, at Pace Setters, right. worked with Siemens, saw it all. So you jump into this, you've got six engineers, 
yourself, six engineer scientists, yourself, what what's going through your head as you as you're looking at building this business? You know, you're you go home at night and you're you're thinking about it. What what how are you positioning yourself for success? Yeah, I, I think the suggestion in your question is a normal one. You know, it's like, uh, gosh, you, you, you must have been you must have been really scared because you really had no background to be in this job is, right. is the kind of the tenor of the question. Can and you, can you see the attorney in him? So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the, the actuality of it was that I'd watched uh paysetter for uh, four or five years and I saw a dysfunctionality at the highest levels of paysetter that, that I almost couldn't believe. And I said to myself, uh, you, you absolutely can't do any worse. So I, I, was, <laughs> I, I was actually probably, uh, uh, at that point, I was, uh, I was way more cocky than I am now. I, I really thought that this, I, I was good at identifying talent. Um, uh, I, I knew that I wouldn't tolerate the kind of crap that I saw at, uh, at Siemens Pace Center. And I thought that it would be... Uh, It'd be just a matter of putting the right people around me, and and uh, and and we'd go and we'd do this thing. Okay. So I, I was pretty confident that um, that in terms of 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 understanding, let's say the whole field, understanding that you know you 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 needed to be able to develop product and and keep highly innovative creators on board, that you needed a manufacturing operation that was highly competent. And that ultimately it would depend upon going out and, and as an example, getting someone like you, Jimmy, to help me build a sales force. I, I thought that I could do that. And, and I, uh, what I probably didn't appreciate is that when you go hire people from the medical technology business, there's no middle class. There's, there's, you, you're hiring people either who have been in startups or coming from the great big companies. The great big companies, people say they took... They took a business from $100 million to $500 million, and you have no idea whether it was their talents that did that or not. And all the rest of the people are in the, in the tiny companies. So because there's no middle class, uh, mid-cap companies, um, it was a hell of a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. So, and, and, and by that I mean it's hard to recruit the right people to put around you. Yeah. And, and, and if you're only 50%, think about that. You hire a, a head of marketing, and it's, he's the wrong guy. It sets back the organization an entire year. Yeah, it's true. Know? And and luckily, I had I had Al's capital, so I could make some of those call them you know big personnel errors, and and the organization could recover as long as it had stamina and persistence, which it did. Right. So when you know it's interesting that you talk about um, people because. It's people, product, and process that really help getting a company going. And like you talk about the engineering and manufacturing; those are all process. Sales is still a process as well. It's just a different type of process. So, being at startup, being here in Valencia, California, what when you look at trying to get that talent, what did you have to do to attract it that that others weren't doing? The one thing that we did do is we used the internet. So, and, and we, uh, we were not constrained by uh, taking engineers from the leading uh, academic institutions in this country. We hired people from all over the globe through the internet. We had uh, just in tiny little Valencia, California, with a company having no more than, well, 
you know, at our height, we, we had more than 100 R&D engineers. But we had people from, you know, at, at one point in the company, from 57 different countries, uh, you know, of origin. That's unbelievable. Right. So, so the one thing that we did was we recognized that there were creators all over the world. And that as long as, as, long as the top creators, the people who were, who were identifying the, these folks on the Internet, they knew what they were doing, we were going to be okay. And, and we were. Yeah. We were. Okay. And so when, when did you actually, when was the first implant, commercial implant of the cochlear device? Uh, probably first commercial implant was after our approval in 1996. Okay. So that was pretty quick. Not really. You don't think so? No. And in fact, uh, we, we were disadvantaged because uh, maybe you remember this guy, Commissioner Kessler was brought into the FDA to reform it at a big generic drug scandal. And all of a sudden, um, the, the ability to get uh, class three devices through was, was limited. And it took us, from the time that we submitted to the time that we got approval, it took us two and a half years. Long time, considering the fact that we had a cochlear implant that had brought something new to the field and was way better than anything out there. So our, the length of time that it took us to get approval allowed the competition to, to, to catch up. And we only, uh, I, I think at some point we had 30, 35% of the marketplace. That was as much as we ever got. And that's unfortunate because we had a much better product and, and would have probably, uh, you know, we would have done better than that if we could have gotten approval sooner. Sure. Okay. How do you compare that today of getting something through the FDA? Uh, you know, it takes it, it takes more, but it's it's probably a little bit more clear as to what's required. Okay, so it wasn't so back then. It just wasn't that clear. Right. Okay. It wasn't. So you mentioned leadership before, because um, I know that's a, a a big important topic to you personally as well as professionally is leadership. So you're going through this challenge. Your competition is going forward. People are looking at you, right? And there, there's been challenges within advanced bionics and with any company, but you always stood there with a very positive, positive attitude, but a very strong, determined, you know, perspective. So, t- when you first took over this company and you had leadership skills and training, obviously in the Air Force, was it any different? How did you apply that to the, these different challenges trying to get through to build this company to keep it together? One of the principal differences is in the Air Force, you have a culture um, springing from, uh, you know, the Army of being a competent organization over 200 years. And, and the Air Force comes on board as a separate uh, service in uh, 47 or 49. Um, but it has a, call it a 200-year history of, of being a competent organization that requires... Um, requires certain both leadership traits and certain conduct from its members. And the people know by being part of their organization what's expected of them. In, in uh, corporate America, it's not true. And when you recruit, let's say, a 45 or 50-year-old guy who's going to run marketing for you, mm-hmm. okay? It, you know, m- my values aren't necessarily his values. And that, that, that means you've got a challenge. You're trying to get people around you every day that are focused on the mission, that the mission is the most important thing, that money is a result of doing something excellent. Not, not the goal, the result of doing something excellent. And if you've got a guy who's uh, 
let's say the leader of sales, mm-hmm. who really the major his major focus is drinking good wines with the physicians. Right. That's his major focus. Mm-hmm. Well, that's inconsistent with what I want. So what do I do? He's pretty good at what he does. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You just you, you go along. Well, I'm, is he making his numbers? Do you, do you care that much about you know whether he thinks the way you think? Mm-hmm. That's what complicates uh, the the attempt to build something of excellence and something that will last because right. because you're not you know you, you're not able to get people around you uh, that um, that are that, that think the same way you do and that have all the cultural values that you want that organization to have. Yeah, so so when I hear that too, though, I, I think it's important because I see a lot of this stuff, and it happens on LinkedIn and other social media, where these leadership quotes are thrown out, okay? And they're nice, but it's just a quote. And leadership, and I think, and I want to go dive a little bit more into this leadership piece, is that leadership never ends. It's not a speech. It's not a slogan. It's something that has to be implemented every day, what, right. right? Right. And and so with today, when I look at a lot of um, a lot of companies that are out there and people that are out there, I really believe that, especially in the audience, people are looking for leadership. They're looking for somebody to follow. How do they find that within themselves if there's a lack? What advice would you give to them? I think leadership is principally about character. So leadership is principally about uh, trying to find in yourself um, the the kind of character traits that matter to other human beings. So what are they? You know, I I think integrity is the first and foremost thing. And and it's it's something that includes uh, the idea of accountability, something that, that includes the idea of courage in the face of risk, um, and, and, and something that ultimately uh, results in other people trusting your word. That, so that's where it begins. Beyond that, you know, you have to have a certain level of competence. You have to be able to see the whole field and articulate the vision to, the, uh, to, to your team as to what it is that you intend to accomplish. And then you really do have to have an ability to, to go recruit the best and the brightest who will trust you to get it done. You know, Jimmy, you're, you're a prime example. I, I went out there and just like you said, we're, we're, I haven't recruited uh, uh, you know, a leader of, of, of sales yet in the organization. So I'm going to go do that. And the first guy I interview is, is a guy from Medtronic, a competitor. Mm-hmm. And the guy heads up the entire organization that, that we're going to be competing against. And I have lunch with him. And uh, we get into a discussion about another a competitor to Medtronic, and the guy poo-poo's, poo-poo's uh, what this, this competitor is going to be offering. And you know, I, I tried to understand why he was poo-pooing it, and he basically said that, that, that they had, they basically made the physicians out there. They had built their practices, and the physicians owed it to them not to go to this competitor, even if the competitor had a product that might advantage patients. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go hire this guy. <laughs> Who's going to not want to sell your product? Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I had this guy. And, and, and when I interviewed you, you know, your fierce competitive nature and, and your high standards just came across the table to me, which, which matched, frankly, me. Right. That's what I wanted. And it was, so it was an easy choice. Okay. Now, 
easy choice. You know, if you're a CEO, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it, it has political ramifications. So I have a boss and I have a board and I'm going to go hire, you know, Jimmy Surik, who's really never had this before. He's mm-hmm. never done this before. So do I have some risk? Yeah, I have risk if I'm wrong. But, I, but again, I told you before, I was fairly cocky. I didn't think I was wrong. <laughs> I thought that it was the right decision. Al generally supported my decisions. And as long as it wasn't you know, t- too far out there, then, then I was going to be able to get it through, and I did. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's an example of, of one of the facets of leadership, an ability to go look through the noise. You know, the, the, perhaps the easy choice is to go get this guy who knew all about spinal cord stimulation, all about the nicks and crannies of it. But he, did, he wasn't a fiercely competitive guy. In fact, he didn't even understand how we were going to win against Medtronic. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I appreciate the, you know, the, the kind words. It was a great team. We, I mean, you built a great team. You're absolutely right. And I think for the folks that are listening you know, to this podcast, when you talk about integrity, accountability, courage, right? Those, those characteristics, being honest, is, is another big one, is that you don't have to be put in a position of leadership to be a leader, right? Right, because I've seen that. I saw that at Advanced Bionics, both both on the cochlear side as well as on the spinal cord stimulation side, where people rose up to a challenge. And those standards, though, that you brought to to the organization, other people gravitated to and held their team accountable for that. Because, and 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 the reason why I'm bringing this up is that I want people to know or feel or understand that they're with a company right now. There may be a lack of leadership. There may be something that is missing. Well, they can pick the ball up and run with it. Right. 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 You don't have to be put in that position. You have to be, and leaders aren't anointed. Right. Right. And so you've probably seen that throughout your career and probably even in the military. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, um, I have four children and my youngest child, uh, is only now, learning the significance of work and what it does, how it brings dignity to, to human beings. And when you're talking about leadership, let's say in a sales role, it's the same kind of thing. If, if you don't see the leadership and those around you, uh, as you, as you say t- to them, and as I say to my child, listen, it, that you cannot allow other human beings to affect who you are. That's right. You, you need to be the kind of person that you're proud of. So that when you shave in the morning, you look at yourself and you know that you gave an honest day's work. You know that you were honest. You know that you treated people fairly. That's the kind of thing that gives dignity back, that gives esteem back. And if you don't do that, it doesn't matter whether you know whether you make a lot of money. It doesn't matter whether uh, you know whether you have some nice car, a nice house. You know, you're you're not what you can be, right? And when you're not what you can be, well, you know, you've missed. You've missed a lot. Yeah, and I think, you know, talking even to a younger generation, and I don't want to pick on, you know, a certain generation, but I see too much of the lack of accountability in what the work that we're doing. We sometimes want to... I don't want to say blame, but we, we point blame either to the company. It's the company's fault. I don't have the right products. I don't have the right manager. And that to me is if you find yourself saying that, become that leader that's lacking because people will gravitate around you if you pick up the ball and you run with it, 
right? And that's and so it's wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be better today than I was tomorrow. I'm going to find the holes. I recognize the holes, but I'm not going to be the guy that's going to complain about it. I'm going to do something about it. And and then that goes back, in, Jeff, what you, what, what you just described is that feeling when you go to bed at night, you've done something. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how big the paycheck was. You did your job and you did the best. And you said you impacted people around you in a positive way. And I think, I think that's just really incre- you know, incredibly important to everyone listening to this because you're building companies. And as a leader of building companies, this younger generation, the folks that we're talking to, even if they're thinking about going to join a startup, have to realize that the roles are going to be much more intense the accountability is going to be much more broad, and you should be proud of the fact, not scared of the fact, and go for it. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, entrepreneurs, people that, that, uh, that start up companies like the one that I'm in now, they look at obstacles as, as just opportunities. They look at, at uh, there's nothing in, our, in the way of, of what we're trying to achieve that is intimidating. Okay. And, and those are people who are successful in life. So if, so if you're a salesperson and, and you see these obstacles, by the way, the obstacles oftentimes are created by poor leadership, by the imperfections of leadership, by the imperfections of the organization. Mm-hmm. But either you look at those obstacles and as you say, in, you complain about them, or there are opportunities. There are opportunities for you to show I know how to solve that doggone problem. That's right. I'm going to go solve that problem. And once you solve that problem, you grow. You know something that uh, that perhaps other people don't, and and you put yourself into a position where you have an opportunity for greater leadership. That's another way of looking at it for let's say a young salesperson who's surrounded by maybe maybe too many obstacles, but just just chew on a couple of them. Address a couple of them, and and you'll grow. You'll be proud of yourself, and you'll put yourself into a posi- into a better position. Too. Yeah, no, I agree. So, Jeff, we talked about these obstacles. So, what was the first major obstacle outside the FDA issue at Advanced Bionics that you it challenged you, but you grew from it, and then you were able to continue to go? What did what was it, and how, and how did you react to it? Uh, you know, there are so many along the way. I was fifteen years, uh, you know, Advanced Bionics. Uh, I, I I remember that. In the early days of advanced bionics, uh, we, our first 400 implants, uh, we didn't have a failure. And we were in adults. We hadn't, we hadn't introduced the cochlear implant in, into children yet. So we introduced it into children, and all of a sudden, the ceramic case that housed the electronics doesn't hold up to a two-year-old hitting his head on the side of a coffee table. And all of a sudden, we had a big problem because we knew that the ceramic wasn't strong enough. We had to keep the company moving forward while trying to solve that problem, being honest with the FDA, being honest with our customers, uh, while at the same time, as I said, working with Coors Manufacturing and uh, in Golden, Colorado, who made our ceramic cases and, and, and strengthening those cases. So that was, again, that was an obstacle, but uh, the important thing is to go attack it, tell people around you what's, what, what the truth is. So mm-hmm. we needed to tell uh, the, the parents of the children. Right. We needed to tell the clinicians. We needed to tell the FDA. We needed to tell our own people. And as long as, again, you, you, you preserve your integrity, then, uh, then you're going to be okay. They're, they're only, I, I like to say there are only really two sacred things in, in medical technology. 
One is the safety of patients, and the other one is, you know, tell the truth. Which right. is, and and, and uh, by the way, those are easier said than done. They're hard. They're hard to create a culture where those are your two great, great values. If right. You will. Yeah. Well, I, I can imagine. I wasn't. I was there for a little bit of it, but not in the beginning when you had to go tell those parents. That's that's got to be not only tough but emotional. But you but you have to tell the truth. Right. Right? right, because otherwise we're just compounding the problems. Yeah, you know, and I think that's a good. It's a good point that in this day and age, you know, truth is just as important as it was. You know, how many years ago? And this business is, um, it's not for the faint of heart. At least those who who want to occupy leadership positions, as you know, um, the regulations that govern this industry are all tied to the criminal law. Right. So that, uh, you know, the, the, the power of the federal government to punish uh, leaders of medical technology companies is, is pretty uh, intimidating. But you can either approach it the way huge companies do. Uh, but by the way, the way Boston Scientific did when we were owned by Boston Scientific, they had a guy who headed up quality assurance. The head of quality assurance made the kind of decisions that I just described that I made in the early days of advanced monics. So that, that insulated the CEO mm-hmm. for uh, su- supposedly because the, the, the CEO uh, was tasked with, uh, with, with generating results and would be too tempted to make the wrong decision. That was the rationale behind letting the leader of quality make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay? But that's what big companies... In this particular case, Boston Scientific. I have no idea whether Boston continues to have that uh, same setup or not. You know, it, it's, a, it, it's not for the faint of heart, but if, if you're not willing to make those kind of decisions, tough decisions, tell the truth, then you don't believe it. You, don't, you shouldn't be in that leadership position. Right. When we ended up selling um, the company to Boston Scientific, and then I went over with you to the uh, cochlear implant company, Advanced Bionics, we sold that off. So then you decided it was time to start another company, right? right? What, what drove you to want to do that? You could go off into the sunset, right? Sold two companies, never have to worry about anything, but, but why start this company? Now, I always thought that, that I was lucky or privileged or blessed, probably all three, to, uh, to lead a company that develop products that, that one, enable deaf people to hear and enable people to get out of horrific pain. I mean, I, I just thought, how did, you know, I have brothers and sisters and, and, and uh, you know, they're all successful in their own right. But how did I end up in a position like that? I could have been practicing uh, government contract law in a Washington, D.C. firm. Right. You know? And instead, I, I was able to, to lead a company from nothing Mm-hmm. To, to, to be able to create cochlear implants and spinal cord simulators and later deep brain stimulators, I thought, man, you know, how blessed am I? So when, when, when I left Advanced Bionics, this is 2010, I knew that I'd learned a ton. Right. I'd made a lot of mistakes. Sure. You know, all with Al's money. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and I thought that, I also thought I, w- I was still cocky. I didn't see anybody out there uh, that, uh, that I thought could do this as well as I could do it. Right. Um, and I thought that's why I convinced myself that that's why God put me on the planet to go do this. Right. So I had, I had a ton of energy and health left 
and um, I had some money, uh, and I thought, let's 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 go do this. Let's if if we think that we can make a difference in other people's lives by by making this new technology, which is what we've done over the last five years, let's go do that. There are very few things better than that, and I. And I wasn't ready to go off into the sunset and play golf, uh, you know, five days a week. Right, right. So how did this, how did this idea come up? Uh, I have four children. One of my, one of my children, I convinced not to. She's a lawyer, and I convinced her not to go practice law, but to sit next to me and uh, figure out what we would do next. And and initially, we saw um, an opportunity in hypertension to create a. Uh, basically a neuromodulation device. Standard neuromodulation device being planted in the upper buttocks. Lead wire would go basically to the renal artery and we cuff the renal artery and stimulate it and reduce blood pressure that way. Okay. And you know, late, late as we were thinking about this thing, we discovered from the leading scientists that it might not work. And while we were finding out that it might not work that way, uh, we discovered the 30-year work of a guy named Peng Li, L-I, uh, out of Shanghai, who had been recruited uh, to University of California at Irvine's new medical school. And he had proven that you could stimulate for as little as 30 minutes per week the median nerve in the forearm and reduce blood pressure. And I thought, this is, this is something that, that my daughter had, had, had given me to review. I said, listen, 30 minutes per week? We can get away with a watch battery. You can make this thing the size of a dime. We don't need any lead wires. You can put it right on a peripheral nerve. Right. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, listen, you have 2,500 years of acupuncture. Why is it even still here? Is it, is it all just hocus pocus or is there some reality associated with it? Because if there's some reality, we can create tiny bioelectronic devices, put them in the periphery, and, and make a difference in people's lives that rivals what drugs are now doing, but without side effects. So that was the whole, that was the whole focus on it. I then went to Dave Peterson, who was the architect behind the spinal cord simulator right. that you sold, and said, is this real or not? Can, can we do this or not? And once Dave said he was in, you know, we, we decided to form the company. Okay. And now you've had some challenges along the way. Right? I have. Right? So once again... <laughs> not it's like, quite as easy as I thought. Right. Well, how about that? It's not as easy as yeah. we thought. Everybody thinks that it will be. Right. Um, well, yeah, it's, it was funny. We were talking about it's not as easy as we thought. There's challenges along the way and obstacles. And you talked about turning an obstacle you know, into an opportunity, a challenge into an opportunity. I want to know if you recall, remember when we were going to launch the spinal cord stimulator, but then we had to delay it. I think we delayed it for four to six months. Right. Right. And so we didn't have any product, but I had 50 sales reps right. with nothing to do. Right. <laughs> so, so what did we do? I don't know if you, if you remember, we created those acrylic IPGs, right? right? So implantable uh, pulse generators that looked exactly like the one that would be implanted. And I think with some leads and we had reps just go make calls and say, I want to show you the coolest thing that was out there, right? And so we ended up, within six months, making hundreds of sales calls that was really non-threatening because we couldn't really sell it. We were just introducing it to it that it's coming in the future. And it was amazing how doctors gravitated to the fact, well, I want to talk to you 
um, I want to hear about this, but I'm glad you're not here to sell me anything today, right? Yeah. And so, but that turned into an incredible opportunity because then by the time we got the product, I think we had three or four months left in the year, we ended up doing 10 million in revenue. And then the next year we did 70 million in revenue. But if you think about that 10 million in four months, that's because we turned an obstacle into an opportunity to let people go out and promote the product while manufacturing caught up to what we needed. Yeah, well, it goes back to what you said earlier, and, and I, I think I tried to reinforce that you're right. You know, you can look at things as, um, as just obstacles and complain. Right. It would have been easy for you to come to me and say, are you kidding me, Griner? I've got 50 guys ready to go and we don't have, we, have, we haven't thought this thing through. Right. Uh, and instead we just said, because we were both kind of aligned. Right. Um, now we, we have an opportunity to go introduce this technology. We'll use the time to, to our credit and to our advantage and it'll all work out. Now. I will say that you almost have to have that attitude yeah, in a startup right. company. My, my uh, daughter, who now works right alongside me, she sometimes says that I have optimism disease. <laughs> you know? um, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Well, you know what, though? Um, as you know, is that uh, you know, I left Advanced Bionics and went to another startup. And it was, it was uh, Intellis Medical. And when I got there, it, was, it, it wasn't just a startup. It was a startup with a turnaround on the commercial side. Completely had to be turned around. And as I went there to look at it, and the, the first original product that they had, you know, it was good, but it wasn't going to take over the market. It was the next generation product that was going to do it. And I re- this is funny. I remember being in the lab playing with the original product going, well, that ain't going to work. <laughs> and, so, and taking the, the next generation one going, okay, I get it. And I was in the lab for maybe five minutes with the product. And the uh, VP of R&D was a little upset because I didn't spend so much time asking questions. But it's a balloon on a stick. It opens up the science. It's not much to it, right? And so, but I was very optimistic uh, because Johnson Johnson just bought the competitor. I was very optimistic that, oh, I I beat Medtronic over Advanced Bionics. How hard can Johnson & Johnson be? So, yeah, when you say that optimism disease, yeah, I think I probably have it. But I think it's a good point for people listening to this is that be positive, be optimistic, look for solutions, sure. right? Sure. And, and you know, if you're, I don't care what you're selling right now, you, you got challenges out there. You're listening to somebody who's overcome a lot, you know, of different challenges, but maintains that optimistic view of what could be. Right. 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 And so, um, so with the challenges with Valencia Technologies now, so you go into the, um, the renal space for, um, controlling high blood pressure. Ardian is bought by Medtronic. Their study comes out after Medtronic paid over a billion dollars for them and says it doesn't work. Right. Right? So what happens, Jeff? What what you wake up the next morning or what what happens? So so as I said, uh, uh, you know, we started the company this 2012 now. And within one year, within one year we had fully developed a what we call ecoin, which is a, 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 an implantable uh, pacemaker with a primary battery, no lead wires, about the size of a nickel. And we put that in 46 patients bilaterally overseas uh, in, in New Zealand uh, to lower blood pressure. 
and our results are coming in. We did a double-blinded sham controlled trial. So we did a trial with reproducible results. Medtronic bought a company without reproducible results, open label kind of stuff. So we knew that our results were reproducible. We knew that they were good. But Medtronic fails, and uh, this, the, the company that is Valencia had been funded principally by me and a few of my friends up to then, mm-hmm. but we were starting to need money. Just as we needed money, Medtronic fails. Right. And I, I kept thinking naively that the venture capitalists would come to us and would look at the data. I couldn't have been further from the truth. The venture capitalists, you know, if you will, ran away from hypertension. You know, they have they probably get 100 different proposals a week, and so they have to make choices. And one of their choices was, listen, we're not going to touch hypertension. There are plenty of other ways of making money. Sure. We're, we're, we're going to go away from it. So three and a half years in, we had to do something different. We turned this entire ship toward uh, using ecoin to treat overactive bladder by stimulating the tibial nerve, which is, uh, which is a nerve above the ankle in, in the lower leg. And we did that. We actually, because, because we didn't have uh, the, the funds to have our entire team in place, half of our team, uh, with my assistance, was placed in various medical technology companies ar- around the Southland. And we've continued the company going forward, generating uh, through a feasibility trial results that are frankly very compelling in the treatment of overactive bladder. So that's kind of where you find me uh, today. Yeah, so but isn't that interesting though is that you're going down you're going down this one road and it looks incredibly incredibly positive. It probably still is, but the venture guys and I know venture guys and like you said they see hundreds of deals a day and what a venture person is not going to do is go invest in something that just showed to fail. Right. Right. Because right. that's a great way not to be a venture capitalist right. anymore. It's right. just that that herd mentality, and so now you've got to you've got to pivot, right? right. You got to pivot pretty quick. So you get your team together, you look at this obstacle, and now there's this opportunity. Right. Because you never know. Hypertension treatment may come back, right? Technologies, people looking at it. There, there's there's opportunity to bring this thing forward. Yeah. So I just think it's a it's a great story. You know, when you look at you look at advanced bionics cochlear and having that, you know, the problem with the devices and the kids, having to overcome that, right? Then you make the decision somewhere along the lines. Well, I think if I got my story right, Carla decided that you could take a cochlear implant and turn it into an SCS device? Not, not quite that. But, no. But what she did do, you know, she was a young kid in, in her kid. She was 25, 26 years old. And... I basically focused her attention on all of neuromodulation and said, listen, we need to figure out where to go next, not just the cochlear implants. We're not going to be a cochlear implant company. And she, through her work and looking at all the patents, all the intellectual property, all the markets, came forward and said, listen, we need to be in pain. You know, it's a $650 million business. It's dominated by Medtronic with technology that is, uh, that's not great. We can produce better technology. And, uh, and we ought to go for that next. So it's Carla's underlying work that laid the foundation for a decision to say, we're going to be a neuromodulation company, first of all. Sure. And secondly, 
our, our first product outside of a cochlear implant is going to be a spinal cord simulator. Okay. So that's just another, you know, taking a look at the technologies, you're having some challenges with the cochlear business, you know, you got to pivot and leverage that technology and then you take it and run with it. And it was incredibly successful. Right. It was probably, I'm not going to say it was easy. It wasn't easy, but it was a lot of fun. We had some ups and downs, but mostly it was just a lot of running fast forward. Right. right? And, and having the energy to, to keep that thing going. But I, I will say that it was unusual. You know, you look back on your career, Jimmy, and I, I don't know what it was that didn't tell us, but, but we had people of, of similar mindset. Whenever you do that, whenever, let's say, the CEO and the leader of sales and the leader of marketing and the leader of R&D right. are all together in terms of what they're trying to do, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. It's, it's not a usual thing. It's a rare thing. Yeah. So that's what we had, and, and it, it produced results that are that are pretty striking if you look back on it in time. You know, that's interesting because people listening to this wanting to go to a startup, I think uh, in one of uh, previous podcasts that we did, we talked about making sure that whenever you're interviewing within the company, making sure everyone that you're talking to is aligned. Right. Right? And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Every, Hard to figure that out in an interview process. It is. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to do. You're trying to ask those questions to make sure. And I know when when I look at startup opportunities, you know, especially in the beginning, you have to make sure you have that same like-mindedness to go after that marketplace because it's getting more and more competitive, not less. Right. And you have to have the right people around you to succeed. Right. Absolutely true. So, um, so Jeff, for guys listening, the gals listening out there, what advice do you have? You know, for people getting into the medical field or have been in it for four or five years, how to how to just make sure they keep on a on a a path for success. I'll go back to something that uh, that you told me four years after we had begun our journey in, in developing the spinal cord simulation business. You know, when we started, we said to ourselves, you and I with, with the other regional managers in one room, uh, we said, first of all, we're going to create a ter- training program that's, uh, that's second to none. Uh, and then we're going to look for people who are competitive, who um, have good interpersonal skills, who have uh, some background in selling. doesn't have to be a medical device but some background in selling. And that was about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't have much of a, a profile that we gave to the recruiters. And four years after that, I said, okay, Jimmy, if we look back on, on who's successful in the sales force, right. um, you know, can, can you, do we now have a profile? Is it guys that, did, that we've identified that, are, that it were super competitive? Is it guys, who, or, or, and gals, obviously, is it, uh, people that uh, that did exceedingly well in our uh, in our training period. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it uh, professional athletes? Uh, is it people that graduated from uh, a college that had done particularly well at college? What is it? What right. is it, Jim? Right. And you basically, I'll never forget this. You said it's none of that. Uh, and I said, okay. Well, what have we learned? And, and uh, you know, maybe in a little bit disappointing to me, you know, you said, the only thing I know, Jeff, is that the guys who show up in the OR at 630 are the guys who are most successful. So that sounds like an old fogey, Jimmy. 
You know, it sounds like, you know, like something that your grandfather would say. <laughs> In other right. words, the guys, the people who work the hardest are the people who are going to be successful. Now, obviously, you know, uh, you, you, you got to have integrity. you got to have interpersonal skills. Uh, you, you really have to know the stuff. You have to have a, uh, you, you, you have to know the knowledge that, uh, uh, that we've tried to, 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 to teach you. But I say, if, if you're a young salesperson, um, you know, there's, there's nothing profound. There's yeah. not one, one doggone thing that I can say that's profound. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I'd, like, I'd like to give you some, you know, profound answer. Yeah. But you didn't give me a profound answer <laughs> years ago. Well, you know what, Jeff, though? But, but I agree with you is that when we looked at the talent, you know, that, that really was succeeding, you know, there, there were a couple things that you could say a lot of them uh, went to state schools. They didn't go to big universities, yeah. right? Um, but, but because they went to a state school, they had their first job at a, at a younger age, right? They, they knew had, about work early. So it goes back to, so that means they were working from a young age, right? A younger yeah. age. So when they got to Advanced Bionics and they saw the opportunity that was in front of them, they weren't going to let it go, right. right? So it really came down to that work ethic. I'm going to show up. Right, and it's not my manager's fault. It's not my manager's manager's fault. It's not Jeff Griner and Al Mann's fault that I'm not successful, because I remember you and I sitting there one time talking, and we were at a national sales meeting. I don't know if you recall this, and Al was sitting there, and he and he and he leans over, and Al says, "Hey, Jimmy, that was uh, these guys are really great. You did a great job." And I said, "Al, I said I'm going to tell you this. There's a lot of people in this room, not a lot, but there's a few people in this room that aren't succeeding." I'm not taking credit for those guys' success that's on stage getting an award. I'm not going to take credit for it. But I'm not taking credit for the guys that aren't making it either. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and it was it was that, you know, ability to say those folks that are making it are are working their butts off. And there's I didn't do anything. We gave them an opportunity. We trained them. We sent them out there with great products, with a, a great process where they could be successful. But it was up to them. I will right. say you're leaving one very important part out of that story, and that is that you did set a high standard, and yeah. the truth is you, you, you taught people, uh, I've forgotten your word for it, but you, 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 you taught people about the process. You taught people that, that certain activities generated results, and you wanted them to go through these activities, and if they listened to you and went through that, these activities, then you would give them time to generate results. If they weren't even willing to go through these activities, and you could you could follow those things, right? Then you were then they'd shown that they weren't going to be part of your sales force. So one part of, of your leadership was the determination to help guide them as much as you possibly could, right? But also the determination to show them another opportunity, meaning let them go if in fact they couldn't do it, and and we let. I may be wrong. I mean, what number? Twenty, twenty-five percent per year go? Yeah, no, it okay. was. Well, I, I can tell you that that is unusual, and that's also being—that's part of being a leader. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, one time we had a layoff, uh, and uh, I was around the room. I tried to—I you know, tried to m make it out amongst the troops as much as I could to try to, you know, because it's—it's it's a tough time for everybody. Right. You know, we lose whatever seven percent of the workforce. And I'm sitting around a table with 20 people in the room, and um, and we were having lunch, and uh, finally someone gets the nerve 
to ask me the key question, which is, you know, uh, you know, Jeff, are 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 we gonna are we gonna have a layoff again? And and the answer that everybody in the in the room wanted to hear was a yeah a gentle answer, sure. kind of like we're gonna try our hardest to make sure that doesn't happen again, and and everything looks pretty doggone good to make sure it doesn't happen again, et cetera, et cetera. And I said. Instead, I said, we definitely are going to have another layoff. I don't know whether it's going to happen this year or five years from now, but we're going to have another layoff. So, so here's the learning from that. We took out 7% of the people. You know what 7% we took out? We took out people uh, that didn't have the right attitude about work. Interesting. Didn't have the right work ethic about work. Did not have the right attitude about being trained. I guarantee you that if, if you... Come in every day with a smile on your face, and you're trying to learn every day with a good work ethic. You're not in the bottom seven percent. You're not in the bottom seven percent. That's right. So that's the learning that you take from this. Yeah, no, I mean that's great, Jeff. I think more and more as we as I go through my career and advice I give younger people is just show up. You know, <laughs> show up and work hard, and take a, take responsibility for everything. And take accountability for everything. There was this, um, a friend of mine, his daughter wanted to get a job in the medical field. And I ended up helping, through a recruiter I know, help help her get a job. And so she called me and she said, hey, thank you so much for helping me out. What advice do you have? Simple. Just like we're talking about. I remember telling her, I said, work your butt off, right? That's all I can tell you. Work your butt off. But now you're going to go to a training class. Do not surround yourself with people that are complaining about the training class, right? Don't get with the folks that are going to just bitch and moan about whatever's going on there. And I go, trust me, I've had training classes. They're, they're grueling. And th- those that complain didn't make it. Find the people in the training class and in the company that are the best. And then go surround yourself with those people. Because you surround yourself with them. They're going to rub off on you. You'll rub off on them and you'll continue to grow. Yeah, right? that's good advice to me. So, Jeff, I think you know we've spent uh, some nice amount of time together on, uh, on on this podcast, and I just want to summarize some things, you know, that you said, so that the medical sales nation could take this with them, you know, as a little bit of a summary. But you talked about leadership, and I think leadership, once again, you're not anointed, right? A leadership can be grown from from the ground up you find a hole you plug yourself in there's plenty of examples throughout history where people took upon themselves to be a leader because there was something missing but to do that you have to have a high level of integrity you have to have a high level of accountability you have to have a lot of courage you have to be honest and show up and work your tail off know the products know the market but have that what I love, that optimism disease. Because if you can be positive, you can find the opportunities when there are obstacles on our day, every day that we're out there working. It's a great summary, Jim. All right. Great summary. Couldn't do it any better. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you once again for all your time. You know that you <laughs> Thanks, gave the man. Medical Sales Nation. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to uh, watching Valencia Technology yeah. succeed. Well, let's do this again after Valencia has a couple more years under its All right. We definitely will. Okay. Be more great stories. Okay. Thanks. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to the Medical Sales Nation. Until next time, good luck selling.